Amen. As we begin this morning, let us begin by taking our Bibles and turning to First Timothy chapter four, or Second Timothy chapter two, and uh, we are going to be studying there this morning on the uh, issue of being unashamed of God's word. Now, all of you like me have probably heard the story about the man who misused God God's word. Has anybody ever known anybody that misused God's word? You ever met anybody that would ever do that? Of course we have. And it's, all, it's always quite striking to find out how people use God's word. You've probably heard the story of the man who decided he wanted a word from God. So what did he do? He closed his eyes. He closed his Bible and let his Bible fall open and then pointed, to the, pointed onto the page. And then he opened his eyes to read the passage of Scripture. And to his shock and horror, he found that it said, Judas went out and hung himself. Thinking he must have been greatly misled that something was wrong. He closed his eyes and closed his Bible again. And again he let his Bible fall open and he pointed onto the page. And when he opened his eyes, it said, go and do likewise. Surely this is not right. This can't be how God is going to speak to me. So he shut his Bible again. He closed his eyes again. And he let it fall open a third time. And he pointed onto the page. And this time when he opened his eyes, he was shocked and horrified to read what you do, do quickly. It's a terrible way to use the Bible, isn't it? And we snicker and we laugh because surely none of us would ever stoop to using the Bible in this way. But listen, it is no laughing matter when the Bible, the Word of God, is used improperly. There are many within our culture and within our world who seek nothing more than power, prestige, and prominence from their preaching of God's Word. They are no more than prophets who are for profit. Indeed, they want the Word of God to give them a place, a position, a power, and prestige, and prominence. They want you to sow seeds of money into seeds of faith, and most often money into their ministries. And why do they want you to sow seeds of faith, and specifically money into their ministries? So that you can profit in the material world. So that you can reap, so that you can have great gains within this world. Indeed, this is not biblical truth. It must be confronted. They are using the Bible improperly. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14. Paul tells young Timothy to solemnly charge all of those who are under his authority in the presence of the living God that if they misuse the Bible, it will lead to ruin. A ruin for others as well as for themselves. This ruin, this word ruin comes from the Greek word from which we get our present day word catastrophe. It'll be a catastrophe. For those who receive these words. Paul means ultimate spiritual ruin in this case. In other words, those that do not receive and hold to the truth of God's word. Not only have their own eternal destiny hanging in the balance. But the the eternal destiny and endangerment of all the souls that would be hearing and receiving their words. The worst catastrophe that I could ever imagine that I could ever imagine would be to spend hell, spend eternity in hell, apart from God, suffering under His justice, His judgment, and His wrath. 
There is no greater catastrophe that I could ever imagine than my soul suffering for all of eternity under the God's justice, judgment, and wrath for the sins that I have committed. The soul of my friends, the soul of my family, the soul of those loved ones all around me within my community who do not know and name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's a catastrophe. And I'm afraid that far too often when we see and hear the messages on TV, they are messages that will lead to our ruin, that will lead us to hell on a primrose path. See, Paul is instructing Timothy in this passage to keep the main things of Scripture, the plain things of his teaching, and the plain things of his of Scripture, the main things of his teaching. He is exhorting Timothy to continually remind people of the main message of God's revealed Word and exactly what is the plain message, what is the main message of God's Word. Well, look in verse 8, and there it is. That's exactly Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, Remember that Jesus... Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, that salvation for sinners is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, it is the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ that gives salvation for sinners and secures their souls for eternity. Timothy, you keep on teaching. You keep on reminding them. Timothy, you keep speaking forth. You keep building the church up in the gospel message that is God's true source of salvation for sinners. Timothy, don't lose focus. Don't you wander off down any other roads. Timothy, don't wander off into self-help, psychobabble, and all that the self-righteous works that those within the church are claiming save them. Timothy... Don't waver on God's word being true and being the source of uh, the source of revelation that provides salvation for sinners. And who is the source of salvation? Jesus Christ said, what? I am the way, the truth and the life. And no man comes to me. What? No man comes to the father, but by me. As we come today. We don't need to wander away from the truth. We don't need to waver on the truth. We do not need to be ashamed of God, His gospel, His gospel ministries, or His gospel ministers. You, we are to stand firm and be ashamed, unashamed of God's Word and fulfill the work of the ministry that God has entrusted to us. Indeed, an approved workman is unashamed of God's Word. And not only is he unashamed, but he will properly Hold it and handle it in the highest of esteem. Let us take for ourselves God's word today and let us see this challenge and charge to be unashamed of God's word. Let's stand in honor of this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 14 through 19. And this is what it says. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection 
has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Father, we come to You now naming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of our salvation, as the security for our destiny. And asking, Father, that indeed You would turn our eyes away from the stuff of this world, the vain and empty chatter. Father, the useless wrangling over words, warring over words. Turn our hearts to You. Let us see and understand the truth of our sin the seriousness of our sin, let us see the grace that you have given in the Savior Jesus Christ. And Lord, let us have a firm foundation in him and him alone. And let us turn aside from all wickedness so that we might seek you and serve you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, Father, with all of our strength. We pray in this time, Lord, that you would speak for your servants are listening. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in this passage that God has given us His Word to guard us against the temptations of the world that lead to spiritual ruin and to guide us and to grow us in godliness. That is what is going on here. God has given us His Word to do what? To direct us away from sin, away from the world, away from the things that would seek to deter and destroy our lives so that we might yield ourselves increasingly to Jesus Christ, so that we might walk in God's plan and His revealed Word and revealed will. And so what He's doing here is saying, listen, turn against, turn, turn away from the temptations of the world, but turn to the turn to the word of instruction that comes in the Scriptures. Let yourself grow in godliness. Really, that's the only two options that are before any individual person within this life. What are those two options before man? Every man has a choice, whether whether to be spiritually ruined or to have spiritual life. The Bible says there are only two types of people. Those who are pleasing to God, who are pleasing to God by what? By faith. And those who have rejected and reviled the person and work of Jesus Christ and have rejected Him and are living for themselves. And so we understand there's only two categories. Those who are increasing in their spiritual ruin and those who are increasing in godliness. And so first of all, Paul gives a warning for those who would be using God's word improperly and says, listen, unless you want to be ruined and you want those who who hear you to be ruined, you need to guard yourself against this. But secondly, he turns on the positive side and he says, but then a workman is one who is pleasing to God, who accurately uses, rightly uses the word of God. So first of all, we see in verses 14, 16, 17 and 18, a warning against the improper use of God's word. 
a warning against the improper use of God's word. In verse 16, the word says it will lead to further ungodliness. The words it will lead to further ungodliness are literally they will make further progress in ungodliness. See, the false teachers claim to have secret knowledge. They claim that they were making progress. And indeed, if you wanted to be at the front of the line, if you wanted to be at the front of the race, if you wanted to lead the Christian pack, as it were, you needed to come and get their special knowledge. We are making special progress. But Paul says, yes, you are making progress, but your progress is for what? Ungodliness. In fact, he uses very strong descriptors throughout these, these four verses uh, in this passage, throughout 14, 16, 17, and 18, to describe the message of these men. It's frightening at a point. First of all, he says in verse 14 that their words are what? Useless. Not only are they useless, but they are bringing catastrophes, ruining those who hear them. In verse 16, he goes on and he says, they are leading them to further ungodliness. They are, it's leading them to make progress in ungodliness. In verse 17, this is spreading like gangrene. It is rotting the church away. In verse 18, these have gone astray from the truth. They've turned aside from God's truth and put forth their own way. And it has upset the faith of some. See, the improper use of the Bible is not just a harmless activity. It destroys lives. It destroys destinies. Indeed, that's one reason James chapter 3 verse 1 warns that there are not to be many who become teachers. Because why? Because we are to know that we will be held to a higher standard. We're going to be held to a stricter judgment. See, that's why Paul warns Timothy here. Timothy It's not just a frivolous matter in the church when false teaching and false doctrine crop up. It's a serious issue and it needs to be taken care of because, Timothy, you need to remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God lest they lead to the ruin of others and the ruin of themselves. These things here in in verse 14, probably it refers back to the hymn just mentioned in verse 8, which says the gospel is the main thing and the plain thing of Christian teaching. Indeed, we come to the end of the preceding section, and he says, listen, if we endure faithfully, then we will reign with Christ. But if we deny Christ, what will he do to us? He will deny us. He'll cast us away. So if we are walking in faith and pleasing God, we will be pleasing, but we will reign and rule with Him for all of eternity. But if we deny Him, He is going to deny us. And He says, it's a serious matter. And make sure you do this in the presence of God. The Bible is no harmless instrument. It's a sharp and powerful sword. There in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we saw it is a powerful powerful sword it is able to divide to discern to to pierce all the way to the soul and spirit indeed it pierces even to the joint and marrow even to the thought and intentions it lays bare the heart of the hearer that's how powerful god's word is it is to be handled with proper care as we seek to faithfully share it with all those we come into contact with 
So the question comes, well, what exactly was happening in the church at Ephesus where Timothy was serving? And what impact was it, going, was it having on the church? We'll look there in, verses, in these verses 14, 16 through 18. And we'll see in verses 14 and 16, Paul says that delving into the depths of minutia and warring over words is actually pointless and useless and ultimately serves to do nothing but divide and destroy the, fault, the unity of Christ and his church. This does not mean that false teachers should be tolerated within the church. I want to be very clear about that. In fact, Paul comes back in verse 17, and what does he do? He calls out the two that are perpetrators of this and says, These men you should not listen to. Indeed, I I want to give you just an example of that in a few minutes, but I want you to understand this doesn't mean we tolerate false teaching and false teachers and their flawed teaching within the church. If we hear doctrine that is not sound, we are to contend for it as we contend for the faith. But understand, these debates are debates that generate an awful lot of heat and very little light. These are debates over minuscule matters within the church. These debates go on and and here we must uh, side and embrace uh, Augustine, as he said, in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. You want to know how the church ought to look? Indeed, how will the church know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our love for one another? Well, here's what he's saying. Where the scripture is not clear, you are to leave it open. But understand, if the scripture is clear, you are not to leave it open. But in all things, you are to love. You are to show Christ's love in a real way. So in the essentials, we are to have unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. But in addition, we see in verses 16 through 18 that some supposed leaders in the Ephesian church had wavered and fallen away from the true faith. Their words were worldly and empty, hollow chatter. These pursuits were leading to the ruin of those that heard them because God's true message of salvation for sinners had been obscured. It had been indeed compromised. It was no longer being proclaimed. So listen, you need to worry about what is being said from the pulpit. Not only that, but those who were proclaiming this message were also making progress, but their progress was towards what? Towards ungodliness and towards their eternal destruction. In other words, the souls of all that heard and received these false and flawed teachings were what? Were being destroyed. And the souls of those spreading this teaching, what? Were headed to hell as well. See, these were people who were not on the narrow way that leads to life. These were on the wide path that leads to destruction. Paul is warning. You need to guard against these men. Paul gives an example of their false teaching. Specifically, he says what? They were teaching falsehoods about the resurrection, saying that the resurrection of the dead had already occurred. That would be quite a shock, wouldn't it? Be sort of like maybe Harold Camping saying, oh, by the way, the resurrection's going to happen. Return of Jesus is going to happen in May. No, 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 I made a mistake. It's going to happen in October. Uh, we're still here. Listen, he stirred up a lot of strife. 
Can't you imagine that anger, bitterness, division, envy, and strife, all of which are descriptive of the flesh-filled man in Galatians chapter 5, not of the man who is under the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Indeed, all of these descriptions are stirred up by these who are making molehills into mountains. Paul, under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had recorded in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, the resurrection was going to happen at the consummation of God's kingdom when Christ would return for his bride to live eternally with him. Surely this false teaching had served to divide, ravage, and rot the church as the gangrene spread throughout the body. And now all of a sudden you had people dividing over all these issues of minutia. In fact, Kent Hughes describes these guys uh, approach and message in a very, very powerful uh, picture. He says they had a malaria message, a ding doctrine, and a tetanus teaching. Their infection oozed with heresy. Let me ask you this morning. The pastor stood before you and presented you with abject heresy and utter ridiculousness according to the Word of God, could you identify it? Could you see it? Could you know it? Could you call it out? Could you say, listen, his preaching is filled with heresy. You ought to be able to. Indeed, we ought to run everything through the truth, not of whether man said it and it came from a trustworthy source, but whether it agrees with the Word of God. See, this supposition that had been put forth, the resurrection had already happened, was actually a great heresy that was, uh, that was driven at the heart of the gospel. Indeed, there was no, what they were saying was that there was no future bodily resurrection, for the true resurrection was spiritual, and it had already occurred. This led to the practice of discounting anything connected with physical life, making daily obligations and concerns for holy living irrelevant. And obsolete. See, spiritualizing the resurrection diminished the sacrifice of Christ. It removed the necessity of enduring hardship and promoted immoral living. Basically, what they were saying was you could sin with impunity as if you had immunity. Just don't worry about it. Do whatever you want. Does that sound like our culture? Does it sound like the churches within our community? Within our culture? Absolutely. Oh, it doesn't really matter what you believe. It doesn't matter where you go or what you do. You just live however you want to. As long as you walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and got wed, it's all good, right? No. The qualification for being Christian is not just some little sample things that I checked off on a, on a ballot one time when they gave it to me at the end of the service. The qualification for being Christian is that I have been changed and transformed, that I believe God's Word is truth. It reveals the sin of my life and the Savior of God's choice, and He has now secured me because I have repented of my sin and placed my faith in Him. That's the message. So that was what was going on in the church of Paul and Timothy's day. But what about the church of 2011? Do we have these same things going on? Well, of course we do. Do we war over the minutia of the world? Absolutely. Well, what color should the carpet be? That'll stir it up, won't it? What, what about the choir robes? What about the, the decorations on the inside? What about the paint on the walls? That'll get some good heat started 
Won't shed a lot of light for the gospel, but it'll get heat started, won't it? Then we turn around and we can be so passionate about the style of worship and the style of music. And we want to make that the central focus and the central tenet. If we would just do things this way, if we would just do things that way, listen, and we don't even know the gospel to share. And we're so apathetic, we haven't shared the gospel. Those are issues of minutia, molehills that are turned into mountains, oftentimes within churches. We are to love God. We are to love one another. We are to be unified in our worship. Indeed, we are to be unified because our congregation, just look around you, spans all generations. We ought to love and honor one another in such a way that we would be unified, that I would be concerned that, hey, let's sing some of the great old hymns for our beloved older folks. Let's sing those great older hymns that teach us truth. Let's let's love our younger people in such a way that we would love them and we would care for them so that we would sing some of the great worship songs that are being written today so that we might understand and glorify God and celebrate His truth. Listen, we are to be unified as a church and unified in our worship. We indeed ought to understand that every song we sing is what? Is designed with two purposes in mind. First of all, it must be accurate and truthful according to the standards of Scripture. Second of all, that it would be accurate and truthful in preparing our hearts to hear the Word of God that morning. Any other big things? See, style is nothing. Substance is everything. Style is nothing. Substance is everything. Well, that's not an issue. Well, maybe that's not an issue, but what about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Indeed, I saw this throughout seminary, people staying up to all hours of the night and debating back and forth whether, you know, God's sovereignty overruled man's free will, man's free will was overcoming God's sovereignty, and they sat there and they argued with one another till all hours of the morning, and then they slept in in the morning and never went and shared the gospel with a single soul. So what did it really matter which side you came down on? The reality is we need to put aside things of minutia and exalt things that are God-glorifying and moving the, the message of the gospel forward. This week we saw another example, and, and I hate to pick on him because I, I know there are a lot here who probably listened to him or have heard him, and I, I've had comments at different times in different places. Uh, you shouldn't pick on him so much, but... Joel Osteen, bless his heart, had another interview this week. And you know, Paul calls out these two guys in verse 17. Says they're teaching false doctrine. Some of you look and say, well, you know what? He's tall, he's winsome, he's witty. Man, he looks good. And his smile, oh, pastor, if you could just look as good as he, you'd be doing all right. Sound of his voice is just so peaceful and soothing. Listen to what he said this week. I believe that Mormons are Christians. 
I don't know if it's the purest form of Christianity like I grew up with, but you know what? I know Mormons. I hear Mitt Romney, and I've heard, I've met him, but I hear him say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he's my Savior. And that's one of the core issues. In that moment, he abject, abjectly gave away the gospel. He committed heresy because he said that Jesus is not the Son of God. If you believe Mormon theology and Christian theology, evangelical biblical theology are the same thing. It is absolutely no place within the course of our two belief systems where they can be unified. We are not two sects of the same same religion. We are different religions. They worship a created Christ and believe that indeed all of creation flows from a plurality of gods, not with the, not the monotheistic God of the Bible. Listen, Jesus Christ is not just an exalted man. He is the incarnate Word of God, God in the flesh. When Glenn Beck calls you to come stand beside him and participate in revival, thank you, but no thank you. We cannot participate in revival of the spiritual souls of mankind because you preach a different gospel than the Bible reveals. It doesn't mean I can't partner with different people for political good of the country. But I want you to be very clear. We cannot compromise the spiritual nature of Christianity. We must hold to the truth claims of the Bible. Avoid, and we are to avoid engaging in a war of words over spurious teachings and properly using the scriptures. But understand, when it is a major issue, we are to make much of it. And so when you hear biblical teaching, you ought to ask yourself three basic questions on all of all biblical teaching. First of all, the first question that you ought to ask is, does it agree with Scripture? Does it honor God and exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? If the biblical teaching doesn't meet these three demands, it's not biblical teaching. Because sound doctrine, no matter what it is, it always gives the gospel as Scripture is expounded and explained. It must point you to the fact that you are a sinner who needs a Savior and Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Secondly, not only should we ask the question, does it agree with Scripture, honor God and exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, but secondly, does it humble proud fallen sinners? See, sound doctrine always Always bring sinners to the foot of the cross where they receive forgiveness and salvation, not by what they have done or what they could accomplish, as in Roman Catholicism, as in Mormon theology, as in Jehovah Witness theology. But listen, it brings us to the foot of cross to receive forgiveness through the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood. By faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is the source of true salvation. If it doesn't humble the, humble the proud, fallen sinners, teaching them not to rely on their own pride and self-sufficiency, it is not of the Bible. Third question that you ought to ask as you hear any biblical teaching, does it promote holiness? 
Does it promote holiness? Is this sound doctrine, sound teaching resulting in obedience to the word of God and progress in holy living? Is it leading me to a genuine love for God, a genuine love for others? Am I glorifying? Is it leading me to increasingly glorify God in all areas and aspects of my life? Those three questions must be answered And if the answer is no in any one of those areas, we are to reject that teaching. So let me say it very clearly. There's nothing of use that you can gain or glean from Joel Osteen. If he doesn't even know the basics, the core of the gospel, the salvation, the difference between the salvation by grace alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as opposed to the Mormon theology... There's nothing you need to hear him speak on. Because he's dabbling in self-help and psychobabble and self-righteousness, not in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moving on. Four of these six verses have presented the negative, and that should alarm us. We ought, to use, we ought to understand using the Bible is not enough. Quoting one scripture is not enough. You can use the Bible, but understand this passage is pointing out we can use the Bible for our own destruction. We Listen, using the Bible for knowledge without obedience to promote worldly goals or to teach half-truths as the entire truth will lead to spiritual ruin both for you and for your hearers. And so we are to guard against the improper use of God's word. But secondly, a workman approved properly uses God's word. A workman approved properly uses God's word. See, the Bible wasn't just given to satisfy our curiosity about the end times or to fill our heads with fanciful facts or self-esteem. The Bible wasn't given for those reasons. Why was the Bible given? The Bible was given because our Creator God, indescribable God, God who has hung all of the stars in the heavens, who has shaped and formed the earth, who has placed man, made man in His image and placed Him upon the earth to glorify Him, that God has decided to self-disclose who He is and how He works. This is the Gospel. This is God's word that reveals who he is and how we can come to know him, how we can relate to him, how we can please him. Indeed, it should be the greatest goal of our lives to know Jesus Christ and to make him known. But we understand how do we come to know who God is? That's the question. How do we come to know who God is? Through his word, through his word. Well, I think I want to get to knowing through my own path. I think I want to make up a God. I think I want to worship a God of my own making. You can't do it. God has revealed himself and salvation all within the course of his word. Second, er, and there in verse, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul gives four ways that the teacher of the word is to be approved. Indeed, these are sort of training principles, and this is the passage from which our Awana, uh, Awana gets its name. Approved workmen uh, are not ashamed. Approved workmen are not ashamed. That's why we teach our kids on Wednesday night, not what self-help and psychobabble says, but what the Word of God says so that they can know and understand and live in and walk in the truths of God's Word. And so understand, here are four 
basic ways, the teacher of the word is to be approved. First of all, he is to be diligent. He is to be diligent. He's to work thoroughly in mining the depths of the scriptures so that he might understand, interpret, and then apply the word of God faithfully in such a way that it would glorify God and that it would lead sinners to salvation. Indeed, if you want to understand a passage of scripture, let me give you three words to be a diligent worker in the word of God. First of all, it's observation. Second of all, interpretation. Third of all, application. Observation, interpretation, application. You go to the word of God with an open heart praying God to reveal himself to you and you ask God to show you what's important about the passage interpret help you interpret how you should understand this and then apply it faithfully into your life it'll make the biggest change in your Bible study of anything you could ever do because now you're not just reading a dead document about a God who doesn't interact in your world but now you're reading the living word of God which is piercing your heart and setting you straight because you're diligently mining the depths of God's word as you observe interpret and apply what scripture says to you it's important we are to be diligent in fact ab simpson says it this way god has hidden every precious thing in such a way that it is a reward to the diligent a prize to the earnest but a disappointment to the slothful soul the pearl is buried beneath the ocean waves. The gold is imprisoned in the rocky heart of the mountains. The gem is found only after you crush the rock which encloses it. The soil gives its harvest as a reward to the laboring farmer. The nut is hidden in its hard case. So truth and God must be earnestly sought. The most beneficial study of God's word requires diligence and perseverance. But the results are worth the effort. You want to know God? You take time and you get alone and you get in His Word and you study diligently. If you want a macadamia nut, what do you have to do? Have to crack the nut. Have you ever tried to crack a macadamia nut? It takes 400 pounds per square inch of pressure to crack a macadamia nut. Absolutely useful, useless knowledge that you'll never want to know again. But it takes 400 pounds of pressure per square inch to crack a little macadamia nut. In fact, they're so precious and so valuable, they shoot them at 400 miles per hour against an anvil. That knocks the seed loose from the outside shell, and then they split it open with a high-pressure water, uh, water jet about 30 seconds later. That's how precious it is to get to that macadamia nut. But oh, the taste of heaven when you go to Subway and get a macadamia nut cookie. (laughs) What a wonderful understanding. God has hidden the most precious things in the things that are sometimes the hardest to crack. So the slothful soul is never going to worry about studying the in-depth details of God's word. But listen, God's word is to be studied by every one of his children. Second of all, not only are we to be diligent, but we are to be approved. 
And we receive God's approval in his gracious gospel of redemption. But this flows into obedience. For indeed, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's how we're accepted to him. But it says then, it goes on to say, but those who come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him diligently. So as you get to know God, as he has set you free from the power and penalty of sin, now he is leading you and guiding you to grow in faith faith and in service to him in order to grow in his grace we are to obey his commands and grow in godliness john chapter 14 verse 15 jesus said if you love me you will obey my commands in first john chapter 2 verse 3 it says we know that we have come to know him what if we obey his commands see the christian life is demonstrated in both faith and fidelity faith and fidelity That we have faith in Christ, but also are faithful to his word. Thirdly, we are to be a workman. We are to be a skilled workman, a laborer, a craftsman who is a carpenter. Indeed, we're the carpenter and God's word is our set of tools. Rather than being sloppy and nailing together a chicken coop that's going to fall apart as soon as the first chicken flies up onto it. Indeed, we are to skillfully craft things together. We are to do a a great work because we know that God is going to inspect our job. If a carpenter knows that his work will be inspected by a skilled master craftsman, then he will not cut corners. He will do his best so that his work will be approved. We are to be workmen. and We are to be accurate. See, the Bible is God's truth. It's God's word of truth. Truth is accurate. It is objective. It is knowable. It is not subjective. It is not fluid. It does not change day to day. If a carpenter showed up at your house and didn't have a level, didn't have a square, didn't have a tape measure, and said, you know, I'm I'm here to build, well, where are your plans? Oh, I don't have any. Really? You're not working on my house. Why not? Because I want it to be square. I want it to be right. I want the measurements to match exactly what I had designed. Well, we all have different ways of seeing what is right. No way to know what's absolutely right. And who's to say that your house has to be plumb and square? I am. (laughs) I'm saying it has to be plumb and square. If I would want my house to be carefully crafted by those craftsmen, don't you think the God of the universe who has given his word would want his house to be crafted with accuracy and skill? How do we do that? Not by telling what other, others what we think or what we feel or what we might perceive as truth for right now, but by telling them what the word of God says. This is our tool. Indeed, God's word is not the sort of thing where one person can see it one way and another person can see it another way. No, the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to be true at all times, in all points, in all places. Understand, we need to use the tools of Bible study and interpretation to discover the meaning of each text in its biblical context. Otherwise, we are being sloppy workmen with God's word of truth. As we come this morning to a close we need to understand change doesn't come from people feeling good or liking certain ideas that they think come from scripture 
Change comes when people are confronted with the truth of God's Word and they submit themselves to it. Thus, we all, but especially those of us who teach God's Word, must be skillful, accurate, so that God's people understand and submit to God's truth in these days of moral relativism. Otherwise, we're just the same as everybody else. Otherwise, it really doesn't matter what the difference between evangelical Christianity and Mormon theology is. The difference between evangelical Christianity and Roman Catholicism, the difference between evangelical Christianity and Jehovah Witness theology. But let me say this morning, it matters greatly. Because God has spelled out His Word, in His Word, exactly what He intended to say in exactly the way He intended to say it for exactly the purposes He intended it to be said. What he has spelled out is that the gospel, the firm foundation of salvation comes to those who know and name the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of all of their life. See, we need to understand. If we're to be Christians, we need to do, as Kent Hughes said, we are to get it straight and give it straight. So the requirement for the church should be this. Every church should be a Bible school where the Word of God is taught accurately. And the, the individual requirement, uh, the, the individual mandate for the Christian should be this. Every Christian should be a Bible student where the Word of God is studied accurately. This morning, Adamsville, let us have this as our charge and our challenge for the corporate church of Adamsville Baptist Church. We ought to see that we are a Bible school where the Word of God is accurately taught. Sunday school teachers, what's your job? To accurately teach the Word of God. Awana workers, what is your job? To accurately teach the Word of God. Youth workers, what is your job? To accurately teach the Word of God. Listen, children's ministries, ministry ministers, what is your job? It is to accurately teach the Word of God. And Christian, individual Christian today, if you are here, you need to understand what is your job to accurately, to devote yourself to study and understand and accurately handle the Word of God. The story is told of a young man who once studied violin under a world-renowned master. And as he was giving his first big recital, the crowd was amazed and awestruck at the beautiful playing of this young man. After every number, the crowd erupted in applause. And after the final number, the, the crowd was cheering wildly. And yet, despite all of the applause throughout the evening, the, man always, the young man always had a dissatisfied look upon his face. And finally, after that final closing number as all of the audience was standing and applauding finally that young man who had a frown upon his face looked as if he was failing all the world looked up and there in the balcony was his great teacher and finally his great teacher smiled a smile of approval and began to clap for his young student in that moment that student burst forth beaming with joy See, if we are faithful to God and faithful to His Word, faithful to the ministry He has entrusted to us, we can, be, we can understand that one day He will call us home to be with Him. And on that day, He is going to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That'll be the greatest gift God could ever give to you. Let me ask you this morning. Let me ask you this morning. 
Are you serving him with everything that you have? With all that you are? This morning, are you handling God's word rightly? Seeing your sin, seeing his Savior, and surrendering yourself moment by moment, increasingly to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If not, then today is the day of salvation. Don't wait a minute more. Don't turn and wander down any more side roads, any more alleys. You come to the cross of Jesus Christ and you surrender your life. You lay your life on the altar and say, God, I'm giving everything to you and to you alone. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to our hearts. In these moments, speak, Lord, to our hearts. Show us where we need to be transformed, where we need to be changed. Show us how we need to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Lord, change our hearts and change our minds so that we might glorify you in spirit and in truth in all we say and do. Father, lead us in this time of decision. And Father, draw us to yourself moment by moment, day by day, so that we might accurately handle your word. And Father, change our lives to bring ourselves into obedience with your commands. Lord, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand as we sing together our hymn of invitation.